What's up everyone? Glad you joined me today. Today I'm here. We're going to have a live discussion on presuppositional versus classical apologetics. We got two really cool dudes here. We got Eli and Josiah. So start off, we're just going to learn who these guys are a little bit in case you don't know. So we're going to start off with Josiah. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're doing, um, what view you hold, things like that? Yeah. My name is Josiah Batten. I am a co-host of the Mountain Musket podcast that tries to interpret Appalachian uh, life through the lens of the gospel. And I am representing the classical position in apologetics tonight. It's awesome. What about you, Mr. Eli? Uh, Mr. Eli, oh my goodness. Childcare <laughs> and the kids used to call me Mr. Eli. Um, <laughs> my students now call me Mr. A, but that, that's okay. Um, yeah, my name's uh, Elias Ayala. My friends call me Eli. I, am, uh, I live in, in New York, Long Island, New York. And um, I am a presuppositionalist in my apologetic methodology. And um, hmm, I teach Bible uh, from seventh grade through 12th grade. And then I teach 12th grade apologetics at the Christian private school that I work at as well. I'm a youth director and um, I love apologetics, philosophy. Uh, what is particularly interesting to me is the issue of methodology. Um, one of the, the main ministries that I have with regards to um, apologetics is, is my ministry revealed apologetics. And um, this ministry, I try to promote apologetics in general. And so I engage in uh, interviews and things like that with other apologists. Um, but I more specifically try to promote the presuppositional apologetic methodology. And I try to present it. This is kind of my goal in doing this is trying to kind of, uh, I know it sounds lofty and, uh, you know, who am I? But I am really trying to change the face of um, popular level presuppositionalism because a lot of presuppositionalists online um, can be very overbearing and kind of uh, not very charitable. And so what I try to do when I teach apologetics and uh, I talk to people who are other Christians or unbelievers, I try to present um, the issues in a charitable way and uh, in a respectful manner, because I strongly believe that um, if we're going to defend the, the, the Christian faith biblically, that includes not just our argumentation, but the manner in which we engage other people. And so a lot of people focus on the always be ready of first Peter three fifteen and forget the gentleness and respect at the end there. So, um, and I'm, and I'm an, and I'm a student in the sense that I'm always looking to learn. And so, you know, even as we're getting into this conversation, I'm not looking at, at looking at it as sort of like, uh, you know, myself versus Josiah. I'm actually very much interested in learning his position, um, because I am a presuppositionalist. I've lived in this world for a little bit and, um, it's good to kind of hear a, a fresh new voice and hopefully I'll learn it in the process. So. Awesome. It's exciting. I'm glad you guys are both here. Thanks for joining me. So just for everyone listening, the format briefly, these guys are both going to give just very brief opening statements. We don't have a set time, but um, I'm trusting these guys both not to go on like 30 minute tangents, which <laughs> I don't think is going to be an issue. Um, and then they're going to dialogue, just kind of discuss where they disagree um, for about 40 minutes. And then we're going to have about five to 10 minutes at the end where we talk about how where maybe they can disagree, but at the same time promote the greater goal, the gospel, the bigger goal, um, the ultimate goal as Christians. And then we're going to have a Q&A here for about 10, 15 minutes. So if you guys have any questions, just put a Q on the live chat. And then I have awesome guy Nate in the live chat. He's going to just send them all to me. And we're going to go through those at the end. So give the floor to you, to Josiah, if you want to take a few minutes and just kind of outline what you believe. Sure. Thanks for having us, Zach. Um <laughs> The classical method is really a two-step approach, and it's fairly simple to explain, a little more complicated to elaborate. But the two steps are, first, the existence of God 
through natural theology. You, you try to establish the existence of God using arguments such as the design argument, um, cosmological arguments, moral arguments, things like that. The second step is to then appeal to the resurrection of Jesus Christ to distinguish Christianity from other forms of theism. So that's the basic method. Those two steps, like I say, pretty simple to explain, a little more complicated to elaborate. Why would we sort of endorse this method? Um, I would say the first reason is it's consistent with what the Bible teaches in terms of examples, principles, commands, and I would say the genres of scripture itself. I do not think the Bible necessarily mandates one method to the exclusion of others. Um, I'm not against the presuppositional method. I don't necessarily agree with the metaphysic and the epistemology of presuppositionalism. Um, when I say I'm not convinced the Bible gives us one specific method, my big fear is always, we, we haven't really debated this apart from the last century, this big focus on method. And my fear is that we would read modern categories into the text where ancient authors, say Jesus or Paul, um, may have been aiming at something different and we try to sort of force our view into it rather than read what they're doing from the text. And the last thing I'd, I'll say in my opening on unity, I would say just to sort of set a path there, because our culture is well below what Francis Schaeffer called the line of despair, and we are the church before the watching world, I think we have to have some degree of a united voice when we address cultural issues, when we address things. We have people in our society who don't understand basic issues of identity and who they are and what it means to be male or female created in the image of God. And we haven't always been the best at speaking in a unified voice to those topics. So even where I might disagree with Eli on certain things, I would be much more interested in speaking with a unified voice on those areas uh, because we are the church before the watching world and our culture is so far below the line of despair and it'll take such a Herculean effort, the farther you see that fruit develop to get them back to basic reality. Uh, so that's my, that's my opening. <laughs> awesome. You're up Eli. All right. Well, thank you for that. Um, laying out, the, I would agree that uh, what I like about the pre, uh, I'm sorry, the classical approach is that it's very simple to explain uh, that step approach there. That's uh, I think that was a beautiful summary. Um, I guess my position as a presuppositionalist, I see that the apologetic methodology of presuppositionalism is a, what I would call a top-down approach as opposed to a bottom-up approach. Um, we uh, start with the assumption, the presupposition, if you will, that uh, the Christian God exists and that in his light, we see light. It is only through uh, the reality, the ontological reality of the triune God and the um, the fact that he's revealed himself to, to everyone. It's only upon that basis that we can make sense out of human experience. Now, I think that this is a, a biblical approach, but I, I agree uh, slightly with what Josiah said, that the Bible doesn't kind of lay out you know, in kind of an official way, an apologetic method, right? So, so, so while the Bible doesn't uh, provide an official like method of apologetic defense in the sense of like laying it all out in like a methodological fashion, uh, I believe that the presuppositional approach is is not only explicitly supported by Scripture, 
but I think it's implicitly deduced from scriptural principles as well. So for instance, uh, you know, while not being, you know, uh, a textbook in any way, uh, in its ordering and the structure, the way the Bible lays out all these issues, um, I do believe that if you take a look at the concept of worldview, for example, the Bible does present to us um, an outlook on the world. So for instance, I'm sure Josiah is aware of this and he would agree uh, that every worldview uh, has within it, um, in, in, with regards to its foundations, three major pillars. And so we can use the modern terminology that, of course, the biblical authors would not have used uh, in their context. But um, I think Josiah would agree that every worldview is comprised of a metaphysic a theory of reality, an epistemology, a theory of knowledge, how we know what we know, and ethics, how we should live our lives. Um, and this is definitely inherent within every worldview, the biblical worldview included. So I would say that I'm convinced, as hopefully Josiah is as well, that the Bible provides for us on revelational grounds a picture of the nature of reality, which is the issue of metaphysics. It also has much to say with regards to knowledge and how it's gained with relation to God, you know, who created man in his image and reveals and relates to man such that man has access to objective knowledge about aspects of reality, which is that epistemological uh, point there. And of course, uh, the scriptures have much to say with regards to ethics, how we should live our lives and how these uh, things are related and inter, you know, intermingled with one another. And as such, I think the Bible, when approached holistically, kind of looking at what the Bible says in its, in, in its entirety, um, I think it does provide us these worldview foundations. And it's through this outlook provided by Scripture that we apply what Scripture has to say with regards to these issues and their necessary interrelatedness to all areas of our lives. Our thinking and reasoning is included in that. And so especially with regards to applying this outlook to like the specific area of unbelief, which pertains to issues of apologetic defense. So I would say that the Bible provides for us a worldview outlook and, and that when you apply this to the area of unbelief, what you have there is a very robust way of understanding how we should engage in defending the faith. And so I would avoid proof texting and trying to demonstrate, say, for example, the biblical nature of presuppositionalism and I'm sure Josiah would say, you know, I'm not going to just proof text the classical <laughs> verses, you know. Um, but um, I suppose we might have to do that to some extent. But I think that when you take the Bible as a whole, it presents to us a way of looking at the world of which apologetics is just one aspect. And so we want to apply as best as we can those biblical worldview principles to that specific area. And I think presuppositional apologetic methodology does that the best. Awesome. Thank you. So. I'm going to set my stopwatch for 40 minutes here. Um, I don't know if you guys have any specific things you want to address, but we'll just kind of let you guys go at it in a sense. <laughs> um, so I'll set my stopwatch for 40 minutes, and I don't know where you want to get started with. I'll start with a sure. question, I guess. Um, when you describe a top-down versus a bottom-up approach, um, Would you agree that if you have, say, you would agree there are valid and sound arguments, deductive types of arguments? Yes? Mm -hmm. Sure, of course. And so when you, when you talk about that top-down versus bottom-up approach, and you're, and you're looking at, say, a deductive argument, mm -hmm. say you have a, let's just take the moral argument as an example. Um, what is the, I guess, objection or the qualification you would want to put on using that in apologetics from a presuppositional standpoint? 
Yeah, well, as a presuppositionalist, I'd have no problem using um, a deductive argument that is, you know, pertains to the moral argument. I would have no problem with that. Uh, Van Til had no problem with using traditional proofs, as long as we do not present these in a neutral fashion, in a way that suggests that they could be understood independent from a broader context of the God of the Bible. So I would say that logical arguments are are useful and meaningful if they are couched within a broader worldview context that can make sense out of those things. So for example, you know, we can talk about existence, for example, you know, someone says, you know, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. And so I could know that I exist. Mm -hmm. but the knowledge of one's existence, to me at least, wouldn't make much sense without a broader metaphysical context in which existence is clearly defined. If you don't have a, clear, a coherent worldview out of which you make sense out of individual facts, how could you even know what it means to exist? So same thing with a moral argument or a logical argument. The presuppositionalist tries to take kind of a more holistic approach and ask those those questions that lie behind uh, those logical arguments. So I would agree, you know, we would both use logic. The unbeliever uses logic. But what, what we're looking for as presuppositionalists is kind of that foundation to point to the fact that only a Christian understanding of the world can actually ground those very things, those very arguments that people use. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, as a sort of follow-up, when you talk about that foundation, mm -hmm. and in your other videos and things, you've talked about the distinction between proximate and ultimate um, starting points, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, with that, with God as our ultimate starting point, with Scripture, revealed Scripture as our ultimate starting point, doesn't that still have to be sort of mediated through our proximate starting point? Yeah, I, I would say that we have to, we understand as presuppositionalists the um, the idea of our proximate and ultimate is held uh, really simultaneously. I can't understand the, the coherency of my proximate without that broader simultaneous ontological commitment I have of the triune God of Scripture. So I would say that we do there are certain things that we come to know in immediate sense, but from the presuppositional perspective, we also know that there is a knowledge that is um, expressed to us by God immediately in light of the fact that we're creating the image of God. So I don't hold proximate starting point in, you know, over here in kind of a temporal sense. And then here, then I appeal to my, my ultimate starting point. We would take them together as Van Til said, as a package deal. And if you take them apart, then I would say the one, you know, you, you really can't take them apart because our starting point only has coherency within that broader context. And so I would say we start with the package, so to, uh, so to speak, if that makes sense. So, trying to take them apart is sort of the mistake Descartes made where I think therefore I am, I'm going to establish everything from right. the certain foundation of what I absolutely can't doubt, except, you know, you still could doubt right. <laughs> certain things with, <laughs> with that. Yeah. Right. And, and I think um, if, if, if a classical apologist is going to present an argument in a way that kind of assumes that it's possible to, to, to talk about the one without considering the other, then at that point, as a presuppositionist, I would probably take issue with, I'd probably kind of, you know, uh, push a little bit. Well, how is that possible? As you know, the common um, characterization of the presuppositionalist is that we conflate ontology with epistemology. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, presuppositionalists don't think we're doing that, but we do hold to the importance that both of them, our epistemology and our ontology are inseparable from one another. And so you can't talk about the one without the other. Um, so I would understand it in that sense. It's this package deal. 
instead of arguing point by point, we talk about the whole system. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's helpful, I think, apologetically when we do that. For example, when you deal with um, two opposing worldviews that are competing against each other, and you're trying to demonstrate the falsity of one worldview, and you're arguing at this kind of worldview package deal uh, method that you're using, you know, it's very easy to, to, to fight against an argument like this. Have you ever heard this? I'm sure you have. How do you know that God's not deceiving you? And so mm -hmm. there's kind of epistemological puzzle. And sometimes Christians will grapple. Well, well, I mean, well, I guess, you know, I have to think of it. Well, listen, if we're arguing worldview system versus worldview system, basically the, the unbeliever from his unbelieving worldview is throwing in a hypothetical that's literally impossible given our system. So they're basically asking, what if the God of the Bible isn't the God of the Bible? You see, mm -hmm. we don't pick apart pieces. We understand the pieces in light of the whole. And that would include the issues of ontology and epistemology. They're married together and they are glued together with uh, kind of unbreakable uh, ties, so to speak. So why not just be a realist then? Why don't you clarify that? Well, uh, so if you look at realism, say, Eddie and Gilson, I have no idea if I said his name correctly, but okay. uh, <laughs> French, you know, uh, Eddie and Gilson, methodical realism, his view that Descartes kind of, kind of problem and the problem of much of modernism was this assumption that you have to sort of separate how and answer that first. Mm -hmm. How do we know and answer that first prior to knowing that or what we know? And his view is kind of, well, no, you, there are some things you just know and you don't have to answer necessarily how prior to knowing them. They kind of go hand in hand. You, you don't uh, yeah. divorce yeah. them. Yeah, I would ask him, how does he know the things that he thinks we just know? He's going to have to have a broader metaphysical context in which that would even make sense. You see, the Christian could argue that there are certain things we just know, but the things that we claim we just know are couched within a coherent worldview system that can ground those knowledge claims. Um, and they're not just merely knowledge assertions. I just making the assertion. We would argue um, in various ways, one of which would be a form of a transcendental argumentation that there is a knowledge of God that we know and that the truth of this God is true by the impossibility of the contrary. And we would argue for those uh, various points. So it's not an issue of someone, you know, anyone could claim, you know, there are just certain things that I know. Well, you can make that claim, but then you're going to have to back up that claim with a coherent worldview system of which that one statement makes sense. And I would argue that a, a view that you just expressed there, I think, would lack the capacity to do that. Now, of course, I can say that, you know, but, you know, uh, we would try to demonstrate that throughout the course of an apologetic encounter. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, do you have any other questions for now or? or uh... I'll let you ask a few. Okay. <laughs> or, or makes. Yeah. Now, um, What's interesting to me in a lot of these discussions um, is that I get the impression, and, I, and I'm, I'm coming this from a sort of like naive angle. I'm, this is honestly something that I've observed, and I don't know if it's essential to the classical approach, mm -hmm. um, is that there's usually this kind of tit for tat back and forth between the presuppositionalist and the classicalist over um, innate knowledge of God versus um, mediated knowledge of God. Mm -hmm. Would you hold to the idea that man has innate knowledge or do you think that knowledge of God is um, something that's mediated, that it's derived at through kind of a discursive reasoning process? How would you understand that? I, I would say man has innate knowledge of God. Okay. Okay, so you would say that man knows God at the outset? I, I would say the truth about God is evident to everyone. And as Paul says, some people suppress that truth in unrighteousness. 
Okay, so when you're saying it's evident to them, is it evident to them through a discursive process of a looking and seeing, or is it kind of internally evident to them immediately? Well, in Romans 1, Paul says it's evident by the things that have been made. So it's it's sort of through the senses, and the okay. senses interact with the intellect. Sure, sure. So, so on that understanding, it seems that the knowledge that you're speaking about is mediated, not innate, which is what you just said before, that you think it's innate, but then you just suggested that through the created order, people observe and, you know, sensation, that's more of the immediate. So, so if you can clarify, which, which is it? Is knowledge of God innate or is it mediated? People have an intellect and the intellect is actualized through the senses. So, so knowledge of God comes through sensation. Not strictly. Okay. Do you understand what I'm trying to ask? Is, I, yeah. Is, so is knowledge of God immediately known to a person made in the image of God? Or is someone made in the image of God, do, do they access knowledge through an empirical investigation or an empirical experience? I would say both. It, there is innate knowledge of God, and it's not exclusive of knowledge of God also being mediated. Okay. So, okay. So good. So you're saying that um, man can have knowledge of God through a mediated process as well as innately he just knows God. Yeah, too. Yes. Okay. So if I understand you correctly, then I'm, then I'm in agreement with that, uh, <laughs> which is interesting because when uh, some classicalists are debating these issues, uh, some of them will deny innate knowledge and argue through, you know, that mediate sense. And so I, I actually hold uh, to both of them. I think the interesting thing about Romans 1 is that it doesn't say that God is known through the created order, but rather... Um, his attributes for the wrath mm -hmm. of God is being revealed, which doesn't really speak to whether man has innate knowledge. It just shows, if anything, that there are certain things about God that can be known through what has been made. So I think that's an interesting point. I'm glad you, again, there we go. That's good. something that I learned. If you hold to both innate and um, <laughs> and, and immediate, um, I think that's very helpful. And so I don't want to pigeonhole any future classicalists <laughs> necessarily to, uh, to one way or the other. Um, all right. So one of the big things that a presuppositionalists have issues with uh, is this issue of autonomy with, reg mm -hmm. with regards to one's ability to gain knowledge. Uh, do you hold to the idea that there is some sense in which man need not assume the existence of God, but given his own tools of reason, he's able to acquire genuine knowledge about the world? Need not assume? What do you mean by need not assume? Like, Right, so you would agree. epistemological... Like right, that. it would be those epistemological ontological issues. So you would agree that the that the God is the ontological grounding and precondition for knowledge and existence. You would agree with that. I would agree with that. Yes. But would you say that the assumption of God is also necessary? So you have that ontological issue, the existence of God being the necessary preconditions, and then the epistemological issue, the assumption of God being necessary preconditions for knowledge as well. Would you hold to the fact that ontologically speaking, God is uh, the necessary preconditions for knowledge? and the assumption of God being the necessary preconditions for knowledge? Would you hold to both of those, or would you separate them? I would hold that God is the ontological condition, certainly. If, if God didn't create anything, none of us would be here, and we wouldn't right. be having this discussion. <laughs> Good point. Uh, but uh, when it comes to the uh, epistemological, I think there, I think presuppositionalism has its own presuppositions in, in even in asking that question. Of course. Yeah, but 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 do, um, do you believe that one a person can have genuine knowledge without assuming the existence of God? Have genuine knowledge about anything? About anything at all? Yeah. Yes, they can. 
Okay, so so there there's that issue of autonomy then. So if he could have genuine knowledge, independent of an assumption of God, I guess my question goes back to my previous question. If knowledge of God is known to him immediately, he knows him, then how does he gain knowledge without assuming him? If we grant their knowledge of God is innate and he has to assume him even to engage in the reasoning process, and yet he suppresses that. So you see, you see the yeah. issue there? So how would you, on your view, explain how knowledge can be acquired by the unbeliever um, without assuming, without assuming the God in whose image he's made and and the God that you said previously that he knows. So I would I would define knowledge as a justified true belief. Okay. To start, and I would say that people are very um, adept at living with what I would consider logical inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. So someone could have something that would be a justified true belief, even if in their own mind, they haven't gone through the process of justifying it. So as an example, if someone believes um, there's a tree in my front yard, right? Just because my neighbor told them that. Well, that's probably justified. They have no immediate reason to think my neighbor's lying or would want to deceive them about such a trivial matter, right? Um, and it's, it is in fact true. There is a tree in my front yard. So I how, how does he know that given his own presuppositions, right? Wouldn't he know that because he actually has hidden presuppositions that he's suppressing? Yeah, he does. He does have hidden presuppositions. That's the thing that was a lot of people go through their whole life in their process of reasoning without ever considering any of that without well, ever thinking. True. Right, right. That's true. But I'm saying in terms of the, the constant suppression of the knowledge of God, there are other things I would argue. Yeah, I would agree with you that there are things that people don't think about. But I'm talking about this knowledge of God that is innate in all people that people are constantly suppressing. And so how can a man gain knowledge through an autonomous process independent of well, well, how can he gain knowledge while he's also suppressing the only grounds that would give him a justification for even knowing that there's a tree in the front yard? <laughs> he I would say you you factor the evidence in relation to the in proportion to the thing that's claimed. Okay. Right. Uh, in this case, being a trivial thing, he doesn't require a lot of evidence or reason. The thing is, he is he's not doing this autonomously, though. He is still bored. He doesn't need, he doesn't realize it. He is, especially on an ontological level, as Van Til would say, sitting in God's lap to slap his face. Right. 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 He's living in God's world, breathing God's air, created in the image of God talking to this other person created in the image of God about a thing God created, right? In that sense, of course, yeah, he's borrowing everything <laughs> from, uh, right. From the, I, would agree, I would agree with you. He, he is borrowing, but how can he have knowledge given his suppression? Wouldn't it be the case that if he does have knowledge is because he's being inconsistent? Not, it's, he has knowledge, not because his worldview is true but rather he has certain things that he knows innately that he's suppressing. So I would yeah. say, if, so if he is suppressing it and he's granting the truth of his, his worldview, his rebellion, how can he be justified in knowing that there's a tree outside, uh, you know, outside the yard, given his faulty assumptions? You see what I'm saying? If we can say that, that he could have knowledge, it, it almost seems like we're granting that he's autonomously able to do that. Now I would agree with you. He's not autonomous, but his worldview that he's adopted assumes autonomy. And so given that adopted autonomous view, he doesn't really have knowledge, right? 
Well, just because he assumes it doesn't make it true. What do you mean? Well, just because he assumes his own faulty worldview doesn't make his faulty worldview true. He's still living in God's world. That's right, why he right. can have knowledge. Right. I would say that he has knowledge because he's made in the image of God and he's using principles that only make sense because God exists. But And he knows those principles, but he's suppressing it. So when I'm, my question is, uh, your views... Oh, Go ahead. He, I'm sorry. Do you want to he, say something? He's he's living logically and consistently. It, yes. Which, which people are very adept at doing. Yes. But yes. that's why that's why I would say he could have knowledge about these types of trivial things. Yeah, he is living logically and consistently, and he probably can't justify his knowledge. But that doesn't mean it isn't justified in well, truth. It's justified when you have the Christian presuppositions. Yeah. Right. I mean, just. Right. Given given an appropriate metaphysic, it can be justified, even if he doesn't know what that metaphysic is or is, is suppressing. Well, yes. Well, we would say he's suppressing it. Right. So he knows he knows in a sense what it is because he cannot fail to operate as though those things are true. But yeah. I would I would add as a caveat, I don't think knowledge requires certainty. Yeah, yeah that's fine. Um, I would say that um, I would say that he certainly knows that God exists. I think there are certain things that are certain in that. In right. that. Um yeah. But even even intelligibility in general, let's let's move away from a, a claim to specific knowledge. I would say that um, to ha even have intelligibility, he would have to think in Christian categories while denying the Christian the Christian categories. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think everyone does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'd be surprised. Like, well, <laughs> you'd be surprised. You, you well, yeah. You you talk to someone. I would make a similar point though about. I would say classical metaphysics where people would want to deny certain aspects of classical metaphysics. And I would ask them, are you denying the essence of classical metaphysics or are you denying a secondary attribute of it? Mm -hmm. Right. And if they say, well, I'm denying a secondary attribute or a, something that's not essential to it. I say, Oh, well, I don't care then. Uh, and if they're denying the essence, I would say, so you admit there is an essence and you have to use that essence and knowledge of that essence to be able to deny classical metaphysics but it's classical metaphysics that teach us, teaches us that things have an essence and secondary attributes or essence and accident, so to speak. Sure. Why don't you lay out for me your epistemology? I, I just lay it out. How is knowledge gained is, I mean, I would hold to what's called a revelational epistemology. I don't know what you hold to. And um, I'm, you know, open to being surprised because you said a couple of things that are, are good. I mean, I would, I would agree in principle and maybe, maybe if we dug a little deeper, we might have some disagreements, but on the surface, uh, that whole thing with the, uh, the ontology and epistemology being together, it seemed like we were on the same page there. Uh, you know, that, that's yeah. good. So uh, I'll, I'll start with going back to Descartes again. I think that's where everything got messed up. Okay. okay. Is, uh, is, we, we essentially had a classical metaphysic, a classical epistemology, what I would, we would just call it realism, for different forms. And even then there were debates, you know, realism versus nominalism and things like that. Uh, but largely it, it was all debated in terms of these, uh, what I would call classical metaphysical categories. Okay. okay. So things like act and potency, essence and existence, um, secondary attributes, things like that, accidental properties. Okay. And in terms of epistemology, I would go back to, God, we're created in God's image. We have an intellect or rationality. And that rationality is informed and grows and uh, develops through 
the data given to it through sensation, through perception, through learning, studying, the whole gambit of experience. So, so uh, you would not, would you describe your epistemology then as a sort of revelational epistemology? I mean, you didn't, uh, I mean, I'm thinking in terms of uh, uh, people who are kind of like sort of foundationalists who start with kind of like these basic kind of beliefs that we could just, you know, we, we self-evidently know, and then we could ask the revelational question later. Um, you seem to appeal to the fact that we're made in the image of God, which I would agree, which mm -hmm. seems to be something you know because of revelation, which I also agree. And so right. it seems like you're starting with revelation to even talk about those things, which I'm hoping that's the case because then there's <laughs> one more thing that we don't disagree on. <laughs> um, yeah. So in terms of starting with revelation, um, like I, I would say it's all general revelation in that sense. Um, I don't think we necessarily start with special revelation. If, if we want to say we all start with general revelation, then yes, that, it, that would be, something I would hold. Um, I don't think we necessarily start with special revelation. Um, okay, so, so let me ask a question. If man knows God innately, and this is a quite a genuine question, I'm not trying mm -hmm. to copy or anything like that. I Hopefully you didn't get that that vibe from you that I'm trying, trying to be, you know. Oh man, I should I have just asked the question, I almost forgot. Um, if, if God, if the knowledge of God is innate, and we know God immediately in light of the fact that we're creating the image of God. That knowledge of the true God, is that special revelation or is that general revelation? I would say something like knowledge of God's existence is general revelation. Obviously, the Bible also reveals that. Mm -hmm. But I think that's something in, in one of the categories scripture itself would give that it is evident also through natural revelation. So you would say that the innate knowledge of man that provides the categories of interpreting the world in a coherent fashion is general, not special, even though it's an immediate knowledge of the God? Well, I would say you look at um, Aristotle. Okay. Okay. He obviously had some conception of God was probably closer to monotheism than not. I, still not a Christian, clearly. Um, and he has these categories, uh, which we would describe as ca categories in classical metaphysics, the, the basic divisions of, of reality itself. Um, I would say those are natural revelation. Those are not special revelation. Okay. All right. Thanks for clarifying that. You have uh, mm -hmm. any questions for me? Uh, sure. Let me turn here. When it comes to scripture sort of being the, um, well, let me ask before I assume it. Um, <laughs> do, do you hold that when you talk about epistemology, scripture is the, or the innate knowledge, what do you view that as innate knowledge as? The truthfulness of scripture, the existence of the triune God, both of those together, like what is that innate knowledge? I would say the innate knowledge is the immediate knowledge of the creator. And that creator is the triune God who has in history throughout the unfolding of history has revealed himself in scripture, which again, adds that other element there. Right. Mm -hmm. So I would say that it's the immediate knowledge of the triune God. And it's interesting that um, having this immediate knowledge and the fact that we're creating God's image, 
we automatically think and function and reason in one and many categories, if you're familiar with the whole issue in philosophy mm -hmm. of one and the many. So that's very interesting that we must function in one and many categories, uh, which is interesting given the fact that it is the one and the many God who is the grounding of all that. So the triune God that we immediately know impresses himself upon us. We find ourselves couched within the context of that ontological trinity, and we actually reason according to the pattern of who that true God is, whom we suppress in our unrighteousness. That, that's how I would explain it. Okay. So the role of scripture in that is scripture is foundational or scripture is something after the yeah. fact? Like Yeah. Uh, scripture is foundational in the sense that it's a revelation of the self-attesting God. And so what scripture says about man reinforces what was already the case prior to, uh, to scripture. And it also has more information that is given to us by the self-attesting God. And it's part of our system. And so to reject that revelation as it comes later on is to reject the wider system that gives coherency to everything else that we believe. And so we could hold to the system of presuppositionalism, for example, where we say God and his word are our foundation without necessarily, you know, we acknowledge readily that the Bible didn't come around until, you know, much later. But I would argue that there was always special revelation in the fact that God from the very beginning communicated to man. Um, right. So that's how I'd understand that. Okay. When it comes to sort of the problem of the one and the many and that sort of being the, uh, at least in Van Til's view, something that was necessary, the Trinity being necessary to resolve this problem, what would be the objection to say, obviously the Bible teaches Trinity, but what would be the objection to say a quadrinity or something like that? What's yeah. the necessity of it being three in one as opposed to say four in one or five in one? Or yeah, well, well, that's a good question. Um, well, when you get into the uh, the the uh, the hypothetical example of a quadrinity, that's coming from a worldview perspective. So if you're going to say, how do we know a quadri a quadri I'm going to say this one, a quadriune God <laughs> is a necessary precondition of intelligibility? Well, if someone's going to posit that as an option, I'm going to ask the person, do you hold to the quadrinity? Well, no, I'm just using an example. Wait a minute. If it's the necessary precondition, how can you present this hypothetical as the necessary precondition from a worldview that's not standing on that foundation? So you either defend the worldview out of which you're making the question, or you adopt that worldview that you're positing is the necessary precondition. So I would say that when someone presents that as an option, it's almost like this assumption of this of one's ability to talk about this in a worldview neutral fashion. Well, maybe the, the God is is four persons. Well, wait a minute. If he is the necessary precondition, that comes with the whole worldview package. Now, with regards to uh, why does God have to be three? Now, we're going to get into some uh, heavy philosophy, which unfortunately the listeners will probably be like, oh, gosh. But it is a very interesting thing. You know, people ask, well, how do you know God's not a binity? OK, and you have two persons uh, that make up the Godhead. Uh, what you lack there is an absolute personal context that gives meaning to those relationships between the two. And so within the Trinity, you have this whole idea of perichoresis, the absolute penetrations of the three persons where each absolute person of the Trinity provides a, cohe a, a personal context of the relationship of the other two. So, for example, the absolute person of the son provides the absolute personal context to understand the relationship between the father and the spirit. The absolute person of the father provides that absolute personal context that facilitates the relationship between the son and the spirit. But you have two. Then what happens? You lack an absolute personal context. And so you have two persons who make up God with an impersonal 
uh, th there is no personal context to actually vitiate that. So then you have this issue of, of abstraction being more foundational than the two persons. And that can still be applied also if you multiply the uh, the persons and things like that. This is laid out wonderfully in a book uh, by Brant Bosterman. Um, I believe it's called The Vindication of Christian Paradox and the, and the Trinity, where he addresses this, this very issue. And if people are interested, I might as well do a shameless plug. I'm actually going to have Brant Bosterman on my show, and we're going to be talking about that very question, why God must be uh, you know, one and three. So again, it's a very deep question, but I think it's important to the epistemological question, because if you don't have the ontological trinity as the grounding foundation and context of your worldview, you won't be able to account for oneness and manyness, of which, in the triune God, oneness and manyness are equally ultimate. And so you have problems if you're a complete monist, if you're an atomist, there are a whole bunch of philosophical problems there that will reduce one's worldview to absurdity, in my estimation. Mm -hmm. So getting, getting to this kind of worldview. Um, Does that make sense a little bit? That was a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're kind of describing like almost like Augustine. You have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is the bond of love between them. Something like maybe not absolute, necessarily that, but something like. personal context. So that's important. So you have the three. There's always a personal context encapsulating the relationship of the two. So within the worldview of Christianity, there is no ultimate non-personal foundation. You always have a personal foundation, which kind of grounds reality and rationality, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I just hopefully you understood that. I'm, I'm just assuming you're familiar with this stuff, you know, because you, right. you had so, uh, <laughs> for the folks listening. So yeah, so getting to this sort of worldview question, um, Van Til often described the lens, or everyone has this lens through which they see and interpret the sort of the whole set of assumptions they make. Sure, um, doesn't that almost lead us to sort of subjectivism in the sense of how do you ever get out of your own lens? Mm -hmm. Couldn't, couldn't revelation itself be susceptible to you just mucking it up through your own lens? Sure. Um, I'm going to answer that question, but I'm going to ask a question. Is it true that all worldviews have a circular foundation? Is it true that all worldviews have a circular foundation in terms in of first, in first, the, in first, first principles, principles that can't be proven by appeal to other. Right. Yeah. You believe that that's the case? Yes. Okay. So now I turn the question around on you and then I'll be happy to answer how I get out of it. If that's your position, then how do you, how would you escape? Are you suggesting therefore from your Christian perspective, your understanding of the Christian worldview that we are in an epistemological standstill in which there's no way to, to get out? Um, if you if if that's your position, then then that's going to be a key difference between the presuppositional perspective because you'd have to grant then that it is possible, however unlikely within your own perspective, that the Christian God is not the true God because how do you get beyond your own horizons, your own boundaries? The way um, the way I would do it as a presuppositionalist is to argue the transcendental necessity of the Triune God. So I would argue that um, yes, we all have presuppositions, and yes, the nature of those presuppositions is circular. But the, the, the beauty of the Christian circle is that it can be demonstrated by its own necessity. Deny our circle and you destroy knowledge. And so other people might have a circle, you know, as in, if you're an atheist, you have your own foundational circle. Let's hypothetically grant the truth of that circle and see where it, where it leads to. And of course, you would agree with me. Atheism doesn't do it. Pantheism doesn't do it. Monism, various uh, versions of monism doesn't do it. Uh, you know, um, uh, heretical views that try to piggyback off the Bible don't do it. 
Um, mm -hmm. So I would say that the Christian worldview is demonstrated, its foundation, its, its ultimate starting point is not, is not demonstrated by an appeal to something external to itself, but rather it's demonstrated by an appeal to its own transcendental necessity. And of course, that would have to be argued out. We would actually argue that. That's part of the apologetic encounter. We'd show how that's the case. Mm -hmm. So to the, the question, uh, so you're asking, how would I get out of the epistemological bind of everything being reduced to subjectivity, yeah. to nonsense? Um, yeah, I would say a, a similar thing, not identical in the sense of that I would say the categories in sort of classical metaphysics, which in, in my view, the Bible assumes, right, that... <clears throat> When you come to first principles, I don't know that I would describe it as circularity, but in the sense, if you're going to try to deny this first principle, you're going to end up assuming it, right? To, to, well, that's to, circular, right? Well, I don't know that it's circular. As you know, someone says there is no truth, and you ask them, "Is that true?" Right? right. You're all, you're pointing out a logical contradiction. Now, in the sense, in a in the sense, they're if they're going to question the law of non-contradiction itself, sure. And you're going to say, well, to do it, you have to assume it. Yeah. I guess in a, in a sense there, you kind of run into a circle. Well, um, well you don't kind of run into that. that that's precisely <laughs> what it is, right? You're assuming logic to demonstrate logic. And you're pointing out that you're not just stuck in a, in a skeptical circle, that there's no way to know logic is valid. You'll all, you're also going to demonstrate the truth of logic by showing its transcendental necessity. Deny it and you prove it. You see what I'm saying? I'm saying that the same thing with God. Yes, God is my ultimate foundation, so there's a circularity there, but deny him, and you'll be in the same place as denying logic, because then we would then argue that only within the Christian context does something like logic make sense. Okay, so explain to me the, uh, and I don't want to take up too much time, it, sure. Zach, let us know if I get off uh, track here, but. He's playing games on his computer. He's playing <laughs> Don't tell them. You guys have about like. Yeah, yeah, I got a point. Oh, sorry. I got busted. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, you guys got about like five-ish minutes but okay. we're not on a strict down I'm okay cut you off no matter what so All right. yeah so ex explain to me with what you just described the i guess the 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 epistemic necessity I, I i get where you're coming from with the ontological necessity i i'm a little i guess confused or at least not certain about where you're coming from with the epistemic necessity of it mm -hmm. If, if the ontological situation is that the triune God exists and that he creates us in our image, in his image, sorry, and that it is he who reveals knowledge to us, mm -hmm. if you don't presuppose that, that ontological context that gives coherency to the epistemological context, then you can't have knowledge. How can you assume a different epistemology that doesn't jive with the ontological situation and actually gain knowledge. So I would say you'd have to, because of our Christian ontology, you have to also presuppose, in a sense, a Christian epistemology. Otherwise, A, you wouldn't have knowledge because of the problems inherent in that. And B, if you deny the God that you, whose image you're made, you still have to think in the categories of which he's created you in. That link between the ontological situation and the epistemological situation is revelational. And so it's impossible to, to tear them apart. So I would say that they're, like I said before, they're necessarily connected. If you don't assume the Christian God and we hypothetically grant this other thing you want to, you want to assume, then you don't know the tree in your front yard. 
when we can demonstrate this through the history of philosophy, and you see things, people like Kant and different forms of skepticism, get remove the Christian God out of the picture ontologically you're in trouble, and remove the fact that in order to know, he must reveal, remove that from the picture, and you're stuck in an egocentric predicament at that point. I'll, uh, we probably have time for maybe one more question. I'll let you ask that if you want to. Okay. Uh, what's your sign? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't expecting that, right? Oh. I'm also a pagan on the weekends. <laughs> totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, in, in your opinion, and this is not this is not a debate question. It's actually, I'm curious. Uh, mm -hmm. What is your favorite argument for God's existence and why? My favorite argument for God's existence? Hmm. So it's, it's grossly underdeveloped um, and, and not discussed nearly as much as it should be. But I would say, actually, aesthetic arguments, arguments from beauty okay. would be my favorite. Okay. And, and the why would be uh, because God is himself supremely beautiful. And uh, I think that's one of the main points of connection that even as far below the line of despair we've gone, people still recognize beauty in the world. Mm. What would you say is the ultimate foundation of your worldview? The ultimate foundation of my worldview. See, I don't know if I want, <laughs> I don't know if I want to grant this, the category of, of well, world. You can make, feel free to make the qualifications if, if you think my, my question was ill-formed. Um, so when we talk about worldviews, my concern, and I know you're, you're not doing this, but my, my, all, my concern is always that you reduce things to a worldview becomes subjective. And I'm saying this for the sake of the listener, mm -hmm. right? That, that worldviews can just become a matter of opinion, right? Uh, but I would say the ultimate foundation, of course, the ultimate foundation of reality itself is God. Okay. I wasn't sure where you were getting at with the subjective issue, though. I'm, I'm, I'm happy you, you, you said that, that I wasn't doing that. <laughs> that was good right, right. No, you're not. Um, okay. With, with the subjective issue, my concern, especially with as much as we talk about worldviews and Christian apologetics, is that we're going to, it, it, I guess it becomes easy to almost assume sort of a Kantian, well, we don't have direct access to knowledge. And I, again, you've clarified that's not what you're saying. And I, you know, that's not what I'm saying. But it becomes easy to assume like, well, we are actually only talking about our perception of the world, not the world itself. Mm -hmm. And so I would want to like clarify the example I would use in the wizard of Oz, uh, the book, right. They get to the Emerald not, not city, the, movie, the book, right. right the book. Okay. Uh, I think, and to clarify the book, I think it's the wonderful wizard of Oz. Okay. Um, they get to the Emerald city and they all put on Emerald colored goggles, right. And the Emerald city is all Emerald. And it's like, well, of course it's all emerald because you're wearing emerald colored goggles. And as a reader, you're left wondering, is the Emerald City really even emerald? Mm -hmm. well, you know, maybe parts of it are, but you don't know for sure. So so right? let me ask the question then. Do you think as a Christian, you're wearing colored glasses that prevents you from seeing the way the, the world the way it is? No, I don't think as Christians we're doing that. No, my concern, though, is just when we talk about worldview, someone assumes like that Wizard of Oz type. Sure. I got you. So, so your issue is with the language. Just when we talk about these things, these are the pitfalls that people fall into. I just, just want to clarify, like I'm not talking about this is just a subjective yeah. like, 
free for all. <laughs> okay. And that's an important clarification. It's the same thing when we talk about presuppositional apologetics, people like Scott Oliphant hate the, the word presupposition mm -hmm. because of its ambiguity. You right. know, it can be a bunch of things and people could assume wrong things about it because it comes with baggage. Um, here's a question. And then this will be my last question for you. And then we can move on to the next segment. Um, do you know that God exists? And do you know that God exists such that you cannot be wrong about it? Yes, to both. <laughs> there you go. You know, I'm so you're practically a presuppositional. Come on, bro. I, Come you know, on. I going into this, I was like, I might not be the best representative of the classical position because I've been pretty influenced by some presuppositionalists. You love Clark, so already you're kind of uh, you're halfway there, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. That you know what I'm happy you answered that. That there you go. I, if you're going to be a classical apologist and you're going to clarify the points and and we can kind of have this communication <laughs> and help me understand where you're coming from, that clarification is is a good thing because mm -hmm. not all classical apologists would say what you just said. And right. So this caricature that all classical apologists are you know they have to believe everything some you know everything William Lane Craig teaches right mm -hmm. you know William Lane Craig is the classical pope you know. Right. Uh, the eyes of many. So um, uh, it's cool that you answered that way. I'm I'm happy you did. And so there's not a lot to disagree with. That's great. So are you guys all good on this part of the segment? Yep. Sweet. I appreciate it. I learned so much just from sitting here and listening to you guys for <laughs> 40 minutes. Um, so we'll transition here for about maybe like five, 10 minutes. I don't know how long this would take. Um, obviously, you guys um, differ on you or do you actually? Um, we understand each other correctly. <laughs> yeah. We agree in some stuff. I think both you guys, you're great guys. You're friendly guys. Um, just Let's just talk for a little bit, you two guys. I'm wondering how you guys think of how, despite we can have some theological difference, how, differences, how we can be united for the gospel. Hmm. Did you want to take that one, uh, Josiah, first? And then I, I'll I can start, yeah. Um, I would say historically, uh, we, we've always in the church recognized the difference between sort of primary and secondary doctrinal issues. Um, I might disagree on an issue of creation. How old is the earth? I might disagree with someone. I don't view that as something that affects their salvation or that um, determines their their position as a, as a brother in Christ. Um, and I would say scripture commands, or at least maybe, yeah, I would say commands a degree of unity um, among believers. And and the question always is, how do we do that given we're geographically separated, we're sometimes doctrinally separated, we have all these other things that would uh, separate us. And I would say the way we do that is by recognizing those fundamentals, that the fundamentals of the faith are still the fundamentals if they're spoken in German or if they're presented in Switzerland, if they're presented by a Baptist or a Presbyterian or, a, you know, go on and on. Um, and again, on apologetics, I would say the reason we need to have some degree, at least, of unity, even amongst the different methods in the different schools, is A, we need to demonstrate to the world some degree of epistemic humility, which it's sorely lacking. Mm. You know, people who don't know anything are on TV, are on social media, <laughs> acting like they know everything. And uh, <laughs> we would be a nice contrast to that if we approach each other with epistemic humility. Right. Um, again, not compromising, but... And the other thing I would say, uh, which I hit on earlier, is culturally, um, 
especially in the West. I mean, it's other places too, but especially in the West, our culture is dying and we're seeing such degrees of cultural decay in the various fruits that it's bearing that um, as much as we're going to continue to have these discussions and we'll continue to address where we might disagree or how we might approach things differently, we're going to have to recognize the overarching reality that our culture is dying and the church has the answer and we need to speak to it in a unified voice. Hmm. Yeah, there's there's very much a lot to agree there. I think one of the, the dumbest things to be so divided over is apologetic methodology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, it boils down to, you know, I like how I'm doing apologetics better than you're not doing any apologetics, you know. <laughs> Um, there, there, there's going to be differences, and as for those differences are important. I think the um, the debate over apologetic methodology is an important debate, and it's a debate that we should have. But to have it in a manner of condemning and kicking someone out of the kingdom because they hold to a different apologetic methodology, I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there is so much that we can benefit from one another, even in the midst of our disagreements. I think one of the big things that that's lacking in the presuppositional camp. Um, is the utilization of uh, specific arguments and evidence. We're so we're so concerned with kind of these broader worldview issues that when someone actually says, well, what is the historical evidence? And then they kind of don't know the details because we've been happy just waving our hands saying, by what standard, right? You know, uh, and I think, I think um, many of the good presuppositionalists are not doing a lot of work in that evidential area. And a lot of classicalists are doing good work in, in those evidential areas that are still very, very important and have apologetic value. Um, And so I think that we should be able to respect each other's differences, learn from one another and have, and and kind of demonstrate to the world that the church is unified even in the midst of its secondary divisions. That we can have, you know, someone like myself and Josiah talking about these things and, you know, afterwards you're gonna be like, bro, that was really cool, thank you so much. Um, Not everyone could do that, especially online and on, you know, Facebook and stuff like that. People biting each other's heads off for what, Mm -hmm. you know? I, 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 yeah. I, I don't understand it, but I mean, that's the world we live in and uh, we need to uh, do our part to work against that. And I think uh, something like you have uh, have us doing now, I think is a good start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, you guys ready to move even on? If, even if Josiah is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe if Eli's wrong. I appreciate it. You guys are great. Um, are you guys ready to move on to some Q&A? Sure. Sure, yeah. Sweet. All right, I'm just trying to scroll up on the top here because this software is a cool thing where I can, like, pop up the question and it just makes yeah. it look cool. StreamYard's really cool. I like StreamYard. I use StreamYard. Yeah. It's, easy format, yeah. It's great. All right, so we're going to go through some questions. We'll try to get through all of them, but no promises because I don't want to drag these guys here forever. Um, <laughs> first question comes from Fairmont Christian, Christian Assembly. He says, will science ever prove the existence of God? Didn't God reveal himself to Adam without a revelation of God? How would we ever know there is a God? That's more than one question. (laughs) (laughs) It's a few. It's a few. It is a couple. All right. Josiah, you want to take a stab at that first and then I'll share my thoughts? Uh, Will science ever prove the existence of God? Um, In, if by proof you mean a metaphysical demonstration from the scientific method, the answer would be no. By the way, this I think is from my dad's church. Uh, (laughs) I don't know who there, but someone there. Um, In the sense of a metaphysical demonstration, a strict point A, point B, point C conclusion, that's it. I don't think the scientific method is set up to do that in the sense that science itself relies on assumptions 
to even work. That the world positions, if you will. <laughs> that, the world, that the world is intelligible, that we have causal relations and we can examine them, things like that. In that sense, it's it's constantly um, proving the existence of God. Uh, didn't God, of course, did reveal himself to Adam and without a revelation of God, how would we ever know there is a God? Uh, we, we wouldn't. The, the question is, what's the, I guess the real question is, what's the proportion of special to general revelation and how do they relate to that? Yeah, a lot of what you said is, is much of what I would say. Science doesn't is not in the business of proving if you, what you mean by proof is kind of this absolute conclusive. I mean, the very process of science is in its utilization of induction and things like that. Induction only gets you to probability. Mm -hmm. And even probability is based on certain certainties of which is not, you know, not part of the inductive process. It's more of your philosophical assumptions that you bring to the table. And so, uh, you know, I don't think you could prove anything scientifically in the strict sense of proof. And any scientist worth his salt, whether Christian or non-Christian, would say the same thing. Sean Carroll, who is an atheist agnostic, he says, uh, science uh, doesn't give us knowledge. Science gives us theories that work. So science is a pragmatic discipline. It's not an absolute truth-finding discipline. I think that's important to recognize. Mm -hmm. um, I agree with Josiah. If God didn't reveal himself, yeah, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know. Uh, we wouldn't know anything about him. Without a revelation of God, didn't God reveal himself to Adam? Yes. Okay, that was an easy one. <laughs> so those are my two cents. Sweet. All right, we'll move on to this next question. This is from uh, Jesse, the true counterphobia. He says, if an atheist has a posterity knowledge of the arguments for Christianity, then isn't it true that he can no longer be neutral, uh, for example, unconvinced ra rather than positive belief for slash against? Yeah, when you're saying a posteriori knowledge is the knowledge that comes before a kind of a discursive uh, reasoning process, right? So if an atheist has a posteriori knowledge, or a, a posteriori <laughs> knowledge, oh my goodness, um, uh, arguments for Christianity, I would say uh, you don't have, uh, I would say that the unbeliever already has a knowledge of Christ, right? So you're asking, then isn't it true, or God, isn't it true that they can no longer be neutral? I would say that no one is neutral. So to say that he can no longer be neutral, I don't I don't think that it's even possible to be neutral in the first place. Whether one is convinced or not uh, through argumentation is really going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be dependent upon a bunch of things, right? Uh, someone says, give me a, give me a, an argument and a proof for God's existence. Well, we can come up with logical proofs, logical proofs with valid premises and conclusions. That's different than whether someone is convinced by them. Mm -hmm. That's more of the subjective aspect. I've seen people who are convinced of very bad arguments and I've, you know, and vice versa. So um, I'm not sure I'm understanding the question correctly, but I hope I'm touching on something that's somewhat addressing what, what they're trying to get at. Yeah. I would only add um, when you talk about these types of arguments, no longer neutral, I would agree they're not neutral. Uh, they, they, might, they might perceive themselves as as neutral uh, but they're not genuinely neutral and when it comes to being unconvinced the the thing that always bothers me when it when you present an argument of any sort and someone is like well it's just not persuasive and i'm like okay well <laughs> persuasive is completely subjective like if, if it's not persuasive because you see a logical flaw in it that's one thing if it's not persuasive because you don't like the conclusion mm. that's a complete you know um, so it unconvinced, I would say it's not our responsibility to convince people. It's our responsibility to be obedient. And, uh, 
sound like a stinking <laughs> presupposition. That's, that's, uh, I mean, that's, no, we haven't heard over here. Let's collect offering and everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I would say be, be obedient. And if, if people find it convincing, that's not necessarily your responsibility or not. As long as you've faithfully and truthfully uh, presented. Praise the Lord. I don't even have to, that, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we might as well move on with a question for Eli on this note. Um, does your interpretation of presuppositional apologetic, biblically speaking, rely on human inductive interpretation? Uh, does your interpretation of presuppositional apologetics, biblically speaking, rely on human inductive interpretation? Well, if I'm correct, then there are transcendental categories that are true by the impossibility of the contrary. So with regards to those aspects, I would say that, no, it's not through an inductive process. Rather, it's through a transcendental process that I could know certain things by the impossibility of the contrary. You do not come to know truths that are true transcendentally through an inductive process. There's a difference between deduction, inductive, induction, and transcendentalness. Now, I could provide an argument that's deductive or inductive with transcendental premises, but that's a different that's a different issue. So are we dealing with interpretation? Yeah, I, I do engage in interpreting the Bible through an inductive way or whatever, but I don't think that that's any reason to doubt whether my interpretation on certain points are faulty. Um, I believe without a doubt that it's impossible for me to be wrong that the Bible teaches that God exists, that he has created me in his image, uh, and that I know things through... Uh, through God's revelation, because I believe that human language has meaning. Um, and so I don't think that we are in some sort of linguistic skepticism with regards to how we interpret the Bible. Now, again, there are portions of scripture that's not equally clear, but in my in my estimation, with regards to those main pillar uh, worldview pillars, I think they're, they're rather clear. God has um, revealed himself such that we can know it through human language, such that we could understand it. Um, so hopefully that addresses the question, if I understood it correctly. Um, next question is from Seth Campbell. Campbell, he says, God is first in order of cause. Is he also first in, in order of knowing? Whoops. Here it is again. God is first in order of cause. Is he also first in order of knowing? <clears throat> so I would say... First in order of knowing. I would say if if you're going to use a sort of argument from, say, the mind, you're going to say, well, someone knows the laws of logic or someone knows these other, what Eli would call presuppositions for intelligibility. Um, even those you have to further ground, so to speak. Even, I'll appeal to a presuppositionalist here, even Gordon Clark uh, argued... <laughs> He's got me blushing. I'm so happy right now. <laughs> ...argued that logic itself is part of God's nature. So if you're using logic, right, you might say, in a sense, you know the laws of logic, uh, right, because in any process of reasoning, you're using them. Uh, so in that sense, you might say you know those first, in a sense. So I guess because I know Seth personally, my answer to what he means by that is no. God God would not be first in the order of knowing if what you mean is you're appealing to, well, someone uses, someone has the laws of logic. Um, now, whether they can ground them, different question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I guess I would understand, uh, you know, if you know yourself, you simultaneously know God, because knowledge of self and knowledge of God is simultaneous on my view. And so I would say that um, he is first in the order of knowing in the sense that in order to know anything, you need to already know God, because knowledge of self is, is simultaneous with knowledge of God. And that's the wrapped up in the whole um, idea of the census divinitatis, which I would hold to as, as Calvin as Calvin taught. Now, again, I would make those important distinctions between proximate starting points and ultimate starting points and how they're a package deal. Um, and so that would definitely play into how one can go deeper into that question. Awesome. Next question here is from Dylan. He says, how does self-authenticating, oh my gosh, I cannot talk. How does self-authenticating scripture, <laughs> how does self-authenticating scripture relate to presuppositionalism? Uh, well, I guess that question would, would be uh, first. Uh, I'm first in the order of answering. <laughs> uh, so, so how does self-authenticating scripture uh, relate to presuppositionalism? Uh, well, it, it very much is related to our ultimate foundation. If, if our ultimate foundation upon which nothing more authoritative can be there, if it's, if it's God's word, right, um, we would say that it is self-authenticating. We do not authentic, we do not demonstrate the truth of God's word by an appeal to something external and more foundational to it. And so the, the, the authority of God's word, the word of God comes with God's authority and it is self-attestingly true such that if you deny that, you lose a foundation for, for everything else. And so presuppositionalists will say that um, the, the word of God is self-authenticating. Uh, it's true by the impossibility of the contrary. As a matter of fact, Van Til would, would substitute God for the Bible if you were to um, try and demonstrate. If you ask me the question as a presuppositionalist, how do I know that God exists? I could argue transcendentally and say by the impossibility of the contrary and appeal to God's self-attesting and authorizing nature and his transcendental necessity. But that argument would still be could still be made with regards to uh, the Bible, scripture. How do I know scripture is true? By the impossibility of the contrary. Deny the principles taught in scripture and you actually undercut all your foundations for knowing anything at all. Now, again, that's a claim, but that needs to be hashed out a little more. So the self-authenticating scripture relates to presuppositionalism because we believe our foundation is self-authenticating, uh, or self-authenticating, if that makes sense. Sweet. All right. Does that make sense? I mean, does that makes sense to me? Yeah. Okay. okay. I'm following you. <laughs> You're not some crazy guy that's just going off. You never know. <laughs> you got the glasses. Just keep the glasses on. It makes you look smart. That's right. I don't want to take it off because then you got one of these things going. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question. Very simple question. Why and how was Hume wrong? Why and how was Hume wrong uh, on everything? Hume was, no. Um, <laughs> Hume was wrong about everything. So Hume was wrong because, again, going back to Descartes messing everything up. Going <laughs> back to Descartes. Come on. I, I mean, Descartes tries to ground everything in humanity, and that's where we mess everything up, right? Um, so... Hume kind of relies on these this Cartesian doubt about our knowledge. And to, to, to address that Cartesian doubt, Hume then develops his system, you know, and then he's like, ah, you know what? We can't even have cause. We can't know causal relations. Okay, well, you, if you can't know causal relations, you pretty much can't know almost anything. Uh, right, that was... <laughs> If, even if you're talking about God creating the world, that's a cause-effect relationship. If, if Hume is right, we couldn't know that. Um, so Hume was wrong because, A, the Cartesian doubt he was relying on, he, he takes Cart Descartes' 
problems. Okay, Hume, I, I'll say it this way. Hume was trying to offer answers to questions that aren't really problems. <laughs> and I would say Hume is wrong because uh, his view undercuts knowledge. And if you undercut knowledge, how does he know he was on the right track when trying to uh, analyze all of these different things that he was uh, trying to get at? So um, his, his philosophy, which reduced to an utter and complete skepticism about everything, uh, is undercutting of the very things he's writing in his books. So he is a walking contradiction. And um, I don't even think if you dig deep down, he didn't even believe those things. Definitely, he didn't live that way. Um, so I think uh, there is an inconsistency there and truth cannot be inconsistent. And so he was wrong. I, yeah, I bet if you offered him arsenic, he would believe in causal relationships. Oh, yeah. Really. <laughs> right. And he couldn't appeal to induction like normally things mm -hmm. act a, a certain way, because on his view, you couldn't even have a basis for induction upon which all of science is based upon. Right. Everything you do assumes induction and that the regularities of the future will be such because of the regularities of the past. You can't you can't do that without you know committing uh logical uh fallacies there so all right next question from roxby roxby is actually one of our patrons seamless plug patreon.com slash in here apologetics but um her question is this is a good question what are some beginner resources for both classical and precept apologists for the book nerds so i i would start okay with classical um Ed Phaser, I don't know if I'm saying his last name correctly, Ed Phaser's book, uh, The Last Superstition, which he doesn't go the whole way toward establishing a classical apologetic, but he does He does essentially all the metaphysical groundwork there. Um, and then if you wanted to get something more, uh, you do have William Lane Craig's On Guard, which is written uh, more for beginners. Uh, Precept, I guess I'll recommend something. Um, Greg Bonson's Always Ready would be a good beginner one. Probably don't start with Van Til as a beginner, but uh, that would be my recommendation. <laughs> okay, okay. What I'm going to do is going to look like I'm kind of one-upping you, and I'm not. I'm totally not, and I'm sure you would have mentioned this if we were sitting around. A best beginner <laughs> resource for apologetics in general is the Bible. And I know you would agree with that, okay? <laughs> and the reason why, and, and now to connect this with presuppositionalism, as I see it, and people are, from my perspective, I think that presuppositionalism is more than a methodology. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of finding ways to submit every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And I'm not saying that that uh, that Josiah is not doing that. Obviously, we have different um, uh, views as to how that would play out. But the more your mind is seeped in the scripture, that you are so entrenched in scripture that it almost becomes like the background music of your life. Mm -hmm. And then you begin to the presuppositionalist and every book on presuppositionalism will hopefully emphasize that as the, the word of God is playing in the background music of your life, you begin to make application in all the different spheres of life of which defending the faith is just one application. So how do I, within my marriage, submit myself under the lordship of jesus christ that's presuppositionalism how do i resolve an argument between a friend and do it in such a way where i'm submitting my very form of argument and my attitude under the authority of christ that's presuppositionalism how do i share my faith with an unbeliever how do i apply biblical truth to unbelief that's presuppositionalism and so um, the more scripture you read the more familiar you are with the christian worldview 
the very system that you're seeking to defend. You see, one of the dangers is that we're so stuck on reading so many books about the Bible that we don't read the Bible as much as we should. And I'm guilty of that as well. Okay. So this is the first. Then, Always Ready by Greg Watson is a really good book. <laughs> um, and so a good presuppositional book um, will, will highlight what I just said, the different applications. Um, this is a good one. Um, this is called The Portable Presuppositionalist. And this is cool because it summarizes what presuppositionalism is. It summarizes the history and development of the thought. It compares classical apologetics with presuppositional apologetics. And then it categorizes different aspects within Van, Van Til's thought. What did Van Til believe about the self-attesting nature of scripture? And then it just has quotes that you can use as for if you're going to write an article or something. And then it says logic. What did Van Til teach about logic? And, and it'll have quotes from his works pertaining to that, Bonson. And then at the end of the book, it actually has transcripts of presuppositional debates with atheists. And you could actually read after you've read, you know, these little quotes back and forth, you know, you actually see how it's applied in, um, you know, uh, in, in an actual discussion with, with an unbeliever. Okay, so, um, you know, always ready, portable presuppositionalist. And if you wanted to sink your teeth in the Van Til at a beginner's level, you know, it's like Christian apologetics is kind of like his uh, easier, uh, you know, when you start on Van Til, people usually start on this if they're going to bypass Bonson and go straight to the guy. Um, I would recommend this. So that's my recommendation. Awesome. All right, we'll go with one last question here. Unfortunately, we're not going to get to all of them. But we'll, I think this is a good one to close on. Uh, similar question from Seth again. He says, who are Christian... Who are Christian philosophers integral in forming your apologetic methodology? Do you want to go first? Do you want me to? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, go for it. Just uh, okay. Um, Jesus, uh, <laughs> <laughs> work because you're going first. <laughs> you go first say someone other than Jesus, and yeah. then you say Jesus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> obviously that one's assumed. I think that's a, that's a presupposition. Yeah. Um, I would go to some of the classical, um, philosophers of the Christian tradition, uh, Thomas Aquinas, obviously being the major player in that tradition, uh, Augustine, um, some guys I have that are less scholarly, you know, GK Chesterton, um, I don't know that I want to call C.S. Lewis less scholarly, but he was actually a scholar of like English and literature, not like theology. <laughs> um, and certainly in modern times, Ed Fazer would be one of the big ones. Um, Norman Geisler. I could, I mean, we could go on on that for a long time, but I'll let you go. <laughs> Who are Christian philosophers integral in forming your apologetic methodology? Well, Informing my apologetic method, obviously, Greg Bonson, uh, definitely Bonson more than Van Til. I, I went to Van Til through, uh, through Bonson. As a matter of fact, I am, I, am, I am a Van Til nerd here. Here is, I actually have an autographed copy of The Defense of the Faith by Cornelius Van Til. This is 1973. Um, there's a pastor friend of mine who is part of the OPC, and he's retired. And every time I go to his office, he'd let me uh, go home with a book. And I tried numerous times to get this, but he's like, no, that one's special. Van Til gave it to me. <laughs> and eventually I kind of kept nagging. He's like, all right, fine. Um, and so he gave it to me. So, so Bonson, Van Til, of course. And um, believe it or not, um, I dare say this person, and presuppositionals probably have a heart attack, I've been very heavily influenced by William Lane Craig. And one of the main things that I've been influenced by him um, by is his conduct. I have been... Uh, 
at the popular level. I think Bonson was in his debates was, you know, sharp, but he was a he was a gentleman, right? I mean, he was respectful, even though he, you know, didn't, you know, mess around. But there's something about the demeanor and and uh, the demeanor and character of Dr. Craig that I always look to him to steady my thirst to destroy an argument. So the, at presuppositional apologetics, whether you hold to it or not, one can't deny that it's a very aggressive approach because mm-hmm. it tries to take a worldview by its throat, so to speak. And, you know, uh, you know, instead of saying, come reason with me and let's talk about the cosmology. It's like, no, you know, presupposition, you can't reason. <laughs> it's very easy to go straight for the jugular. And so if you don't have that tempered with a godly personality, you can do good presuppositional argumentation like a jerk. And so therefore you're engaging in an unbiblical apologetic. Looking at Dr. Craig has taught me to try your best to keep your cool, be professional, and not just for the sake of professionality, to be godly. And so I very much respect uh, Dr. Craig. I've seen people, you know, make fun of him, atheists and other Christians who didn't agree with him or whatever, but he always has been uh, the picture of self-respect and dignity and a desire to uh, reflect God in everything that he that he does. And I say that even with certain disagreements with the methodology. I think he's uh, an awesome example of that. So been highly influential. Uh, um, I don't always hold that up, but I do try. And he's definitely that picture that I have in my mind when I do so. That's great. All right. We will start to wrap things up here. Uh, start with Josiah. Just maybe if you have any closing thoughts. And then if people are like, I like this Josiah Batten guy, how do they find out more about you and your work? Sure. Um, closing thought, big picture is um, I think it's important that we continue having discussions like these, recognizing that there there is ground and, and there's increasingly scholars working on the ground for sort of unity, even amidst the disagreements um, among the different methods. And that as Christians, we should remember, uh, you know, again, I'll quote Francis Schaeffer, that we are the church before the watching world. And I think that hits on Eli's point of our demeanor, our character, our gentleness and respect in our defense of the faith is extremely important. Um, and if, if you're interested in finding out more about me, you can look up the Mountain Musket podcast. It's on every major podcast format. Um, there's also a website, mountainmusket.com. And that's how you could find out more about me. Awesome. Same to you, Eli. Uh, yeah. Well, once again, my name is Eli Ayala and I am... Uh, with Revealed Apologetics, which is a ministry that I that I started that focuses on apologetics in general, presuppositional particularly, but I do have a YouTube channel, which I highly recommend, not because it's my own, but because um, I've had some great um, interviews um, with some top scholars uh, from a presuppositional perspective, and when some classicalists as well, but I've, I've interviewed people like uh, Scott Oliphant. I'm having um, Jeff Durbin come on on the 29th, Doug Wilson on the 27th, James Anderson from RTS, presuppositional guy, top-notch scholar. I just had Michael Kruger on. And again, uh, these interviews help unpack different applications of presuppositional apologetics, which I think is very helpful for people to get a firm grasp as to what is it exactly we're saying, as opposed to kind of seeing kind of these crazy debates online between these people who are shouting and yelling and stuff like that. So uh, you can check those out at... um, uh, revealed apologetics. I've engaged in some debates as well that I think went very well, and you could find them on the YouTube channel as well. And I have a podcast, um, Revealed Apologetics, on iTunes and other formats. So definitely, you can check me out there, and, um, and you can email me too if you want me to come on your show or you want to suggest someone to come on my show. Uh, you can email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. 
And both of these guys do check their emails a lot. I just want to say that. (laughs) All right. Thank you guys both for coming on. I enjoyed this a lot. I'm sure everyone else did. And yeah, that's it. Thank you, Zach. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Thank you.